My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 25th, 2012. I did not expect to be in studio. In fact, I'm not doing a full program today. Details forthcoming. tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, which at the moment is guaranteeing that I have all kinds of job security. Anyway, um, if you've been following me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that today has been a day of controversy. And I'm going to talk about it briefly, and then I'm going to segue into what, well, what the program's going to be today. Um, I had originally pre-recorded a program uh, for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith with the idea that uh, I had, uh, uh, well, had made the trip to attend the Elephant Room Conference, and uh, the, the site that I had selected to attend it at was at, uh, in Rolling Hills at Harvest Bible Chapel. So the idea was today I would be out of studio and we would play a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. My ho- my goal was to go and, well, watch and see what happened. Listen and take notes so that I can report on it on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Well, sometimes it has the same go the best laid plans of mice and men. Yeah, well, anyway, um, so here's the deal. Um, yeah, well, I registered in my name, you know, Chris Roseborough with, you know, my... <laughs> 
And, uh, and uh, you know, I had fa- discovered that a, a blogger friend of mine from the Chicago area was also going to be in attendance. And so we decided that, you know, we would, uh, you know, attend together and take notes and compare notes and stuff like that. And uh, when we arrived, um, <laughs> we walked in to the uh, Elephant Room Conference and the sec- <laughs> there's a security guy there. And, <laughs> man, this guy, <laughs> whoo. He was a security dude. Let's just put it that way. He had the look. He had the build. He had the stern face. He had the... And as soon as I walked in, he recognized me. <laughs> I said to my friend, uh-oh, we've been had. And, uh, you know, they've, they've recognized us. And sure enough, uh, it, you know, you know, bada-bing, bada-boom, we were <laughs> escorted to the side of the lobby and uh, told by one of the elders there at uh, Harvest Bible Chapel that our registration had been revoked, that our money would be refunded, and that uh, we were to leave the premises immediately, and that uh, we would not be allowed, and don't even think about coming back and trying to sneak in. (laughs) That's what they said. And so it's like, oh, okay. So, um, you know, we went out to the parking lot, and we were um, sitting in the car, Asking, well, what do we do now? And I noticed that the elder had come out of the building and uh, was ensuring that we <laughs> were going to leave the premises. Not enough that we had left the building. They wanted us off the property. And so I called up a friend of mine, Ken Silva, called him on the phone, and I, and I had I had my uh, iPhone. And so I put my earbuds in. I said, Ken, I, I need you to listen to this conversation so I have a witness. And so I walked up to the uh, uh, the elder and I said, you know, listen, um, I think you're making a mistake. You know, I really think you're 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 making a big big mistake. You know, because I'm a member of the media, and if you're going to turn me away and not even let me come here to you know one of the multi sites for the event, and you know listen and take notes and report on it, um, then I'm gonna you know I'm gonna have to break the story to the wider body of Christ. And um, he basically said, "So you're threatening me?" And I said. <laughs> No, I'm not threatening you. I'm promising that if you're going to continue down this way, that I'm I have no choice but to report the fact that you've you know you know basically forbidden me from attending the uh, elephant room. And he says, "So you're threatening me?" It's like, no, I'm not threatening you. I'm promising to break the story. There's a difference. And he ba- the conversation at that point ended. Uh, he basically said to me, "We've already called the police." And if you don't get off of our property, we're going to have you arrested for trespassing. And it was pretty clear at that point that the conversation was over. And so I left the um, the parking lot, left the uh, the venue, and uh, proceeded back to Indianapolis from Chicago. Just because you know, I love you know, um, you know, wasting gas and you know, putting miles on my truck and stuff like that. So that's what happened. Now, basically, what does this prove? Okay, listen. Okay. The Elephant Room Conference was billed as a toe-to-toe, combative, we're going to have the tough conversations, two guys, you guys on two sides of the same issue, asking the tough questions and stuff like that. It's not that at all, okay? Plain and simple. The Elephant Room Conference is a theodrama to create the air, the impression of tough conversation. But the reality is, is that if it was really about tough conversation and really hashing the issues out, then there would be substantive conversation from people who had substantive disagreements 
on these issues. Uh, they would invite guys like myself or Phil Johnson to sit across you know, the table from guys like Stephen Furtick and Mark Driscoll and James McDonald and others so that these issues can be hashed out. But th- see, the reality is this. The only people who were invited to the Elephant Room Conference were people who, well, they already agree with what these guys are doing, and, they, and they're participating in the same kind of uh, uh, methodologies and even theology. And so, you know, this was an in-house um, theodrama to create the air of controversy. But think of it this way. Have you all ever watched uh, NBC's uh, television comedy called The Office? It's it's a hilarious program. And, you know, there's some, you know, I like the first couple of seasons. I haven't really watched it after that. But one of the things that struck me about that particular comedy is, is that the way it's filmed it's filmed as if it's a reality TV show, but it's not a reality TV show. It's a scripted comedy. So it's not reality TV, but it's made to look like it's reality TV. So that's the idea behind the elephant room. The elephant room you know, is, it, it's, it's falsely advertising itself as a real conversation, as real controversy, as real hard-hitting. It's not. It's a scripted theodrama. designed to look like reality TV, just the same way that The Office looks like reality TV. But it's not. It's not. It's scripted. And so, I mean, it's perfectly... Hey, listen, they can do whatever they want with their conference. They want to have a conference where they talk amongst themselves and create the impression that they're having substantive, you know, uh, deep theological, you know, conversations that are controversial. They can do anything they want with their time on their premises or whatever. But the reality is this. You don't have to believe it because if it was really true that they were really about having substantive conversation, about really having the issues discussed in depth you know, so that they are out on the table, well, they wouldn't have um, <laughs> escorted me off of the premises. I think the reality is this, is that they were not too thrilled with um, – the um, well, my analysis of the Code Orange revival and Stephen Furtick's, you know, what do we call it? The uh, 2012 Heresy Olympics. I don't. I think they're 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 not thrilled with the critique that I've been offering, and uh, and as a result of it, you know, I'm not welcome at their parties anymore. That's perfectly fine. They can invite who they want to invite at their parties, but I'm going to continue to point out the fact that that wasn't substantive biblical conversation that we heard going on at the uh, Elephant Room. That was a scripted theodrama designed to look like reality TV, and it wasn't. So, plain and simple. They can sit there and say, oh, they're all about the controversy, all about the conversation. We're going to really do this. We're going to go toe-to-toe. No, they're not. That wasn't even a sparring match. From the looks of it, I mean, they sat down and scripted this whole thing out, and they have an agenda Create unity. Just can't we all just get along? Can't we all just put away our theological differences and just give each other a big hug? Yeah, no, I've got some serious theological issues with their methods and their messages. And you know what? They don't have to talk to me. There's no law that says they have to. But then again, there's no law that says I have to remain silent either because I wasn't arrested. And so I don't have to exercise my right to remain silent, and I won't. Anyway, let's talk about what we got on deck for you to, for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Again, 
I pre-recorded, you know, a portion of this so that it would be ready to go, thinking that I would be out of the studio uh, at the Elephant Room, and, well, things are a little bit different. So for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, it's a light edition, and I've selected a fine philosophical apologetic lecture. Yes, that's right. For those of you who love, you know, sitting in your mom's basement, eating Cheetos on a beanbag, and, uh, and going to Star Trek conventions, yes, we've got one of these dry theological apologetic philosophy lectures for you. <clears throat> By the way, it's a great lecture. It's worth uh, listening to. By uh, Ken Samples and uh, his academy lectures at Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. The name of the lecture is Abductive Reasoning and Inference to the Best Explanation. It's a fine apologetic lecture for our light edition of Fighting for the Faith today. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, just so you know, there's not going to be any interruptions. You go ahead and listen to it, and uh, we will uh, pick up this story regarding the elephant room tomorrow uh with uh with you know we'll be debriefing a little bit more about it including um, i'm hoping to have aaron benziger on the program uh to discuss because she was the other person who was escorted out along with me so anyway so that's what we've got on deck today with that here is ken samples well the topic that uh, we're going to be looking at for the next couple weeks is entitled uh, clear pointers to god and the way that we're going to be looking at this question of god how do I think about God? How should I as a Christian reason to God? How, what is the best way of me as a believer understanding the Christian faith, uh, Christian theism, which would be the, the worldview that is attached to uh, the Christian faith? But more than that, how do I, what is the best way of doing apologetics? What's the best way of persuading other people that what we believe is true, is rational, is superior to all other belief systems? Well, I'm going to argue that there are clear pointers to God. There are many things in life. In fact, I'm going to argue that all of the major things, all of the major realities that we encounter in life in the world, they point to God. Uh, think of it as a signpost, if you will. Uh, there are many things in the world and in, in our lives that if we think carefully about them and if we reflect upon them, they will indicate to us that God exists. And not just any God, but the God of the Bible, the God of Christian theism. So the way I'm going to be approaching this subject is to say that by believing in the God of Christian theism, and again, Christian theism is the worldview that is associated with our faith. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what a worldview is and why we think that way. When you believe in the God of Christian theism, it makes sense. It, uh, it, it makes the meaningful things of reality, the, the meaningful realities of life, they all come into clearer focus. And so we'll talk about things like the cosmos itself. Why did the, why did the universe have a beginning? Why is the universe so fine-tuned? Why is it that scientists have not been able to discover outside of our solar system the same careful fine-tuning that we find in, in our part of the universe? And what about, what about human beings? What about uh, things like human reasoning and rationality and mathematics? What about moral principles? 
And then finally, what about the person and character and credentials of Jesus Christ? Uh, Jesus makes sense of the world. And so this is a, this is a very different way of, uh, of, of reasoning. And I think maybe a, a good way to, uh, to tackle this, and I'm going to, is to kind of indicate to you the way that we reason. And so I'm going to do a little logic lesson with you. And of course, Christians should be very interested in logic because the word logic comes from the New Testament. Jesus is called the logic of God. Actually, in John 1, it's the logos. He's the word. That's where we get the word logic. And so Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, you encounter the reason of God, the mind of God. It is God's way of thinking come to us uh, here on earth. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, logic. The way we try to go about proving things in logic is we, uh, we come up with what we call arguments. We have arguments. Now, that, that's not uh, what I do with my wife, even though I do have arguments with my wife. I'm talking about something different. I'm not talking about a verbal spat between one person or another. Uh, an argument in logic has a very specific definition. And it's really a very simple thing. An argument in logic is really a very simple thing. All you have to do to have an argument is to make a claim that something is true or something is real or whatever it may be. You make a claim and then you provide support for that claim. Okay? That's, that's all an argument is. You make a claim and you try to back it up. You try to support it. The claim is called the conclusion. Okay, that's your central claim. That's that's what you want to prove. That's what you want people to accept. That's your conclusion. The support we call premises. Now, uh, an argument is a simple thing. You make a claim and you try to support the claim. Now, what makes an argument? What what makes an argument a good argument? Well, a good argument is when your conclusion is well supported by the premises. Uh, in deductive reasoning, we call that a sound argument. In inductive reasoning, we call that a cogent argument. So if your premises do a really good job of supporting your claim, if your conclusion is backed up by your premises and your premises are good, then you're going to end up with a, with a good argument. So really, uh, logic is, is all about arguing. It's all about trying to prove things. Making an argument is really a very simple thing. Now, let, let's talk a little bit about what a good argument constitutes. And I'm going to use a, a little acrostic here, a little memory device. I'm going to write the word track, T-R-A-C-K. Um, in order to have a good argument, you need your premises to back up your conclusion. So your premises, first of all, need to be true. All your premises have to be true. If you have one false premise, your argument's dead in the water. If any one of your premises is false, it's going to end up, if it's a deductive argument, it's going to be invalid. It's sunk. If it's an inductive argument, you've got a false premise, it's same thing, dead. So you want to have all your premises need to be true. You also have to have all your premises be relevant. They have to pertain to the conclusion. Here, I'm going to make an argument for you. I, I'm going to say the, uh, 
the Dodgers, the Los Angeles Dodgers, who won three more games than they lost this season. The Los Angeles Dodgers wear blue caps. The Dodgers have red, white, and blue uniforms, and they do at home. On the road, they have a gray uniform, but we'll say at home they have a red, white, and blue uniform. And the Dodgers play in a place called Chavez Ravine. There's my three premises. They got blue caps, red, white, and blue uniforms. They play in a place called Chavez Ravine. So here's my conclusion. They're the best baseball team in the world. Now, what's wrong with that argument? Aren't the premises true? Don't they have blue caps? They do. Aren't their uniforms red, white, and blue? They are. Don't they play in a place called Chavez Ravine? They do. But what's wrong with the argument? The premises, the premises are true, but they're what? Irrelevant to the conclusion. The color of your hat, the color of your baseball uniform and where you play is irrelevant to being a good baseball team. If you had good hitting, if you had good pitching, if you had good defense, now you're talking things that would be relevant to a baseball team being a very good baseball team. So your premises have to be true, but they also have to be relevant. If they're irrelevant, they're bad premises. They're not going to support the conclusion. Okay, let's, uh, let's move a little further here. They need to be uh, true. They need to be relevant. I'm going to skip over my A there. They need to be clear. You don't want them ambiguous. You don't want them having multiple meanings, right? You don't want them blurred or fuzzy. You don't want them having multiple meanings and, and all of that. They also have to constitute knowledge meaning that they're things that actually communicate information to you and uh, they need to be true, relevant, and accurate. Okay, meaning that they're all on target. That's just basic logic. That, that's the way we reason. We make a claim, God exists, and then you have to back up the claim. You have to give me some good reasons. Or, or, or if you say... President Obama is going to lose in 2012. That's your conclusion. Now you need to give me some reasons to believe that that is in fact going to happen. Well, the economy is not good. And usually when the economy is really poor, that doesn't bode well for the re-electing of a new president. Or you might say, uh, maybe the Republicans have a really good candidate and he's going to come along. Well, again, you're making... You're making an argument. You're making a claim and you're trying to support the argument. Now, let me talk a little bit about the way we're going to reason in this class. We're going to look at three different types of reasoning. We call them deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, and abductive reasoning. How many of you have ever heard of deductive reasoning? Anybody inductive? How about abductive? Well, here is the, here's the good news tonight. Uh, I'm actually going to talk about abductive reasoning. These are very common ways of reasoning. I'm going to argue throughout our course that the best way to reason to God is abductively. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about what we mean by this. A deductive argument is when you construct an argument in such a way that if the premises are true and relevant and accurate and clear and they constitute knowledge, that is if they're really good premises, then you're going to end up with certainly true conclusions. You know, if I, said, if I said, for example, all men are mortal, what does that mean, by the way, all men are mortal? Everybody has the capacity for death. Everybody's going to die. That's the bad news. 
By the way, that's a clear biblical teaching. Everybody dies. But there's one man who came along and didn't stay dead. And that's the central teaching of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ came along, and he was a man, but he was more than a man. He was publicly crucified, but he came back to life. Well, if all men are mortal, and uh, Socrates is a man, okay, those are my two premises, all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, now here's my conclusion. Therefore, therefore, Socrates is mortal. Uh, By the way, the word therefore is what we call a conclusion indicator. Usually if you're consistent in logic and you use the word therefore, you can pretty much know that's when the conclusion is coming. Therefore, certainly it follows that. It must be that. That's the language of conclusion. So let's, let's look at this. This is a deductive argument. All men are mortal. That means each and every man is mortal. That means each and every man has the capacity for death. And guess what? Socrates is one of those men who's mortal. Conclusion, therefore Socrates is mortal. Now, if these premises are both true, and if these premises are relevant to the conclusion, then what can I say about the conclusion? That the conclusion is certainly true. Certainly true. If if all men are mortal, if each and every man is mortal, and Socrates is one of those men who is mortal, then it follows with certainty that Socrates is going to someday die. It follows with certainty, and that's the characteristic of deductive reasoning. If you do it the right way, if you do it the right way, you end up with a certainly true conclusion. So a deductive argument is when you carefully construct an argument in such a way that the premises support the conclusion so well that if the premises are both true, or in this case I've got two premises, I could have more. By the way, we call this a syllogism, two premises followed by a conclusion. But but that's not something we have to emphasize here. Now, a deductive argument, a good deductive argument, is when your premises that do the supporting of the conclusion support the conclusion so well that the conclusion ends up being certainly true. You, You really can't doubt it. There's no doubt about it. So if all men are mortal, and Socrates is one of those men who is mortal, and if both of those premises are true, and if both of those premises back up your conclusion, then your conclusion is certainly true. Okay, now you can make mistakes in reasoning. You can end up with a deductive argument that you'd like to be certainly true, but it's not because the premises aren't carefully constructed. But that's a triple-A deductive argument. Let's leave that one alone because we're not going to reason that way in this course, as valuable as that reasoning is. And, of course, what's great about deductive reasoning is there's no doubt. It follows with certainty. I mean, that's pretty nifty to be able to have no doubt about your argument. The problem, however, is very few things in life are deductive in nature. Uh, There are things like mathematical argument, geometric argument, philosophical argument. Most of the things that we think about and reason about are not deductive. They're inductive. Now, in an inductive argument, if you set up your argument properly, again, an argument's a very simple thing. You make a claim, call that the conclusion. You support the claim with the premises. And if your premises are all true and relevant and accurate and clear, 
and they support the conclusion, then you have a conclusion that's probably true. You say, oh, probably, probably, uh, I'd like to have it with certainty. Well, the problem is that most of the things we reason about are inductive things. The best we can get are probability. But, you know, that's not a bad thing. If somebody told me, Ken, when you retire, your 401k is probably going to be very high. I'd take it. Uh, or if, or if, what if my doctor came to me and said, you know, Ken, I think you're going to live to be 85. I think it's quite probable that you're going to, you'll live to be 85 years old. I'd say, okay, that's not bad. Now, what do we do with, what do we do with probability? Well, let, let me give you an argument here. Um, I love American history. And my favorite period of American history is World War II. Uh, why is that? Because my father was a combat soldier in the Second World War. And when I grew up, I thought my dad was Captain America. I saw all these medals that he had on the wall, and I thought, wow, uh, what, a, what a terrible war. 60 to 70 million people died. But uh, freedom-loving liberty was, was given. Now, now, here's my argument. I'm going to say that... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say that uh, Hitler uh, was a dictator and he was evil. Okay, Adolf Hitler was a dictator and he was an evil man. That's premise number one. Premise number two, Stalin was a dictator and he was an evil man. How many people died under Stalin? Some people, some people think in the 20th century alone communism murdered 100 million people. So a lot of dead people. Uh, what if I said uh, Mao was a dictator and an evil man? What if I said uh, Pol Pot was a dictator and an evil man? What if I said uh, Saddam Hussein was a dictator and an evil man? What, what, if I, what if I went on with 10 different, in my book, by the way, I do list 10 or 12 dictators, and I argue that they're an evil man. Now, here's my conclusion. Therefore, Therefore, all dictators are evil. Do you agree with that conclusion? So you don't, you don't agree with that. So, so, you're, so you're essentially arguing that it is possible for there to be a dictator who wouldn't be evil. Do you think most people in Egypt today would say Mubarak was an evil man? Now, what I think we can do with this argument is I think we can say that conclusion is probably true. There might be an exception. And I would agree with Bob. Not all dictators are equally evil. They're just all terribly evil. Notice that uh, I, I frankly think you can make a very strong argument that if you got a dictator, the next dictator, he's going to be evil. If you give people enough power, power corrupts. Power corrupts absolutely. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think that's a biblical argument. Still, though, I think the best we can do is to say that's probably true. But I, I would take that bet any day of the week. I would say that the next dictator to appear on the scene of the world, he will be an evil man. Now, I, I can't know that for truth. Steve's argument stands. There might be an exception to that rule. But I think the 20th century alone has given us enough evidence to indicate that dictators end up being the vast majority of the time. But all I want you to see is not dictators and evil I want you to notice that with inductive arguments, the best you can do is to end up with probably true conclusions. Now, again, though, 
Sometimes probability is good. That's what you have in science. You have high degrees of probability. Scientific thinking is typically inductive in nature. It's philosophical reasoning that ends up being deductive. Scientists talk about probabilities. Now, what what I want to do, however, is I don't want to argue deductively or inductively in this class. I want to I want to argue abductively. Now, now again, I'll bet most of the people have never heard of abductive reasoning. Uh, it's kind of a a well hid secret, and it's a very powerful way of reasoning. And I think it's the best way of reasoning for God. I think it's the best way of reasoning for the truth of Christianity. Let me illustrate what I what I mean. Abductive arguments don't argue for certainty, but they also, like induction, they don't argue for future states of affairs. You know, if you're a scientist, you'll say, if this, if this hypothesis is true, then there'll be, you're trying to predict something. That's what scientists do. Here's my hypothesis, and if it's true, then I predict that there will be certain outcomes. And if those certain outcomes are true, that makes my hypothesis much more probable. Well, abductive reasoning doesn't provide certainty. So it's like induction, different than deduction. But abductive reasoning, unlike induction, doesn't attempt to predict anything. What you have is, what we call is, an inference to the best explanation, meaning simply that you argue something like this. You you say... uh, President John F. Kennedy was murdered November 22, 1963, in downtown Dallas. Now you've got two basic explanations for how President Kennedy was murdered. One of them is the lone gunman. The assassin, according to the Warren Commission, was a man named Lee Harvey Oswald. He was, a, he was a, an American who had fled to Russia. He was in the Marine, United States Marine Corps. That's where he learned to shoot so well. And uh, after he got out of the Marine Corps, he lived for a time in Russia, married a a young woman, came back to the United States. But he was was a communist. And he was very antisocial. He had a terrible relationship with members of his family. He was probably a psychopath. That is, Oswald probably never felt love a day in his life. And what I mean by a psychopath is he probably had no empathy on any other human being. And the theory, the psychological theory, the explanatory theory was that Oswald killed JFK because he wanted to go down in history. He wanted, he wanted to be a, a great figure in history. And so a person who had little consequence, like Lee Harvey Oswald, by the way, he was working in the school book depository. You know how much he was making? A dollar twenty-five an hour. You know how much JFK's family was worth, President Kennedy. You know how much JFK's father was worth when he died in 1969. Joseph Kennedy in 1969 was worth six hundred million dollars. If we bring that forward, that's about two and a half billion dollars today. The Kennedys were one of the richest, most wealthy families in America. In fact, uh, John Kennedy's dad, Joseph Kennedy gave each of his nine kids a million dollars in their bank account the day they turned 21 years old. They'd never have to work a day in their life. What a huge fortune. So now the question is, 
How could somebody as inconsequential as Oswald kill somebody as consequential as John F. Kennedy? How is that possible? Now, now that's the first alternative. A second alternative is a conspiracy. Maybe there were more than one gun in Daly Plaza. Maybe there was a number of people trying to bump off JFK. So there was a conspiracy. There were people conspiring together. And if you uh, doubt conspiracies, remember that uh, Abraham Lincoln was killed by a conspiracy. And uh, even Richard Nixon admitted that uh, he knew a lot more about the Watergate conspiracy than he admitted. And so it is possible that a government could conspire It is possible that forces could conspire together to maybe rub out somebody. So now here's abductive reasoning. What is the best explanation for the assassination of President Kennedy? You're not going to get certainty. And there's no way to predict anything. It's already happened. It's over with. How long has it been since JFK was killed? 48 years ago. So you can't predict anything. It's not like you can do an experiment. So what are you left with? Abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning would say whether it's the lone gunman theory or a conspiracy theory. And and depending on the issue you're dealing with, there might be three or four. But largely, either Oswald acted alone or he didn't act alone. Or maybe Oswald wasn't involved at all and maybe there were other people there. So now the question is, what is the best explanation? Now, I hope the question in your mind next would be, what's a good explanation? And then we can lay down a criteria. We can talk about the best explanations. Well, what do you mean by a best explanation? Well, number one, it has to be, it has to be coherent. A good abductive explanation is coherent. What does it mean for something to be coherent? Holds together. It has an internal logical consistency. You know, if your argument is filled with contradictions, then it lacks coherence. So so the best explanation is going to be coherent. It's going to be reasonable. It's going to be something that is not filled with contradictions. Okay, so, so one characteristic of an abductive argument is that it's coherent. Another characteristic of a good abductive theory or argument is that it corresponds to the facts. I'm kind of an odd person. I'm I'm learning more that that's the case. I've probably read three dozen books on the JFK assassination. Um, Vincent Bogliosi. How many of you ever heard of Vincent Bogliosi? He is the famous trial attorney who tried Charles Manson. used to be one of the district attorneys here in Los Angeles. He wrote a uh, 1,600-page book arguing 1,600 pages, and I read the whole thing, and I outlined it. So uh, then then I have 4,000 books in my library, and they have notes all through them and nicely drawn arguments. And then my son told me, I was hoping to leave my library to my son, and my son says, I hate books. I just read online. I I want electronic books. And I've written all these wonderful notes and all of this logic and learning, and he just wants a Kindle. He doesn't want all of this. Well, correspond to the facts. That means your theory has to match up. It, it, it 
It needs to match the facts. It needs to be consistent with the facts. And guess what? Bugliosi, in his 1,600-page volume, he argues for the lone gunman theory. He says all the conspiracy theories are kooky and crazy. He says there is 53 pieces of evidence that point to Oswald being the lone assassin. Let's think a little bit about this. What if your what if your next door neighbor's house got broken into and there was a burglary and they live right next door to you, and the police come and they they figure you know this, somebody came through the window, uh, it's the window on that side and by the way you live on that side, and they say uh, there's there's some footprints on the ground and by the way uh, you happened to be helping them in the backyard a few weeks ago and so your footprints are there okay. But now, now here, here is what you could argue. You could say, look, yeah, of course, I, I live right next to them. You know, I might step over into their yard. There might be a natural reason. You know, I, I brought their mail to them the other day. But would there be 53 pieces, different pieces of evidence pointing to you as the burglar? I don't think so. So a really good explanation, a really good abductive explanation it's going to hold together. It's going to be internally consistent. It's going to be reasonable and rational. It's going to avoid logical contradiction. But it's going to correspond to the facts. Okay? It's going to uh, avoid unwarranted assumptions. What is an assumption? You think something's true, but you don't know it. You're kind of, uh, you're assuming, right? But you don't know it. A good explanation doesn't assume. It, do, it avoids unwarranted assumption. It stays away from maybe, could be, possibly be. It has good solid reasoning for, for being. Another good thing about a good explanation is that it's balanced between complexity and simplicity. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, ever heard of Occam's razor? Everybody ever heard that term, Occam's razor? By the way, William of Occam was a, was a Christian theologian. He's a Christian philosopher, Christian theologian, a well-known writer and scholar. Uh, he once said, I wish I, it would have been better that if a good aftershave had been named after me rather than, that's a joke. I'm, I'm making that up. Occam, Occam is known for the razor, and that means the simplest explanation that fits all the facts is the best. That is, when you have to come down to an explanation, the simplest one that really does account for all the data, go with that one. But, but notice that it's not simply simple. Some, some explanations can be simple and they don't track all the data. Some can be very complicated. What you want is the simplest explanation that is fully orbed, that meets all the data. That's the right one. And then maybe another one we could throw in here is you want to accommodate possible counter evidence. A good explanation is pliable enough where it can say, well, you know what? I can tweak my explanation and I can account for that alternative evidence. Let's go back to the JFK assassination. Lee Oswald had a, a Mandlaker Carcano rifle. It's a very typical Italian carbine. It was used in World War II by the Italians. Uh, and it was a heavy-duty rifle, and so undoubtedly, if you hit by a bullet like that, it's going to do a lot of damage to your to your body, to your organs. 
Oswald only had about eight and a half seconds to pull off three shots with an Italian carbine rifle. Now, Oswald was a good shot. We, we actually can look at his shooting record in the Marine Corps. And uh, he, was a, he was a good shot. But you have to be pretty skilled to get off three shots in eight and a half seconds and, and to hit the president twice, and one of them in the head. Well, there were seven wounds on JFK and Governor Conway, but only three bullets. So now one of them missed. So how could two bullets do damage to two different men? You know, how do you set that up? Well, the, uh, the lone gunman theory says, well, wait a second here. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. But maybe one of the bullets passed through both of the men. And by the way, I can tell you that in the war, uh, my dad often said that you did not want to bunch up in combat because a, a bullet will go right through one man into another man. And uh, so a good theory is going to have to be able to explain certain things. How could Oswald do the shooting? Could he do the shooting? If he couldn't do the shooting, then we've got to consider something else. So can your theory adjust to possible counter evidence? Now, all of that to simply say this. I think this is the way to reason to God. I think this is a very powerful way of reasoning and a very powerful way of reasoning to the truth of our faith as Christians and to the truth of the God of Christian theism. I think that God, appealing to God, appealing to the God of Christianity, explains so many of the powerful, meaning thing, meaningful things of reality. A little later, we'll look at some of the alternatives. Uh, if, it, if it's not Christian theism, then what are the other alternatives? Well, uh, maybe it's uh, Islamic theism. I mean, there are other forms of theism. Or, or maybe it's naturalism, meaning that there is no God, and nature is all there is. And maybe evolution explains a lot of these things. Maybe there's a natural explanation for all of the meaningful realities of life. Or, or maybe there is uh, Eastern, mystic, Eastern mysticism, so we end up being... A, a Buddhist or a Hindu. I think this is a very powerful way of reasoning to God. I think certain things need certain explanations. We, by the way, we could probably put postmodernism up here as one of these alternatives. Postmodernism is characterized by certain things. Skepticism, uncertainty, subjectivity, relativism, pluralism. All of those are part of a postmodern perspective. However, usually all of that is connected to a form of secularism. So in one way, postmodernism is connected to naturalism, but usually naturalists are more objective, less subjective. They're, they're more arguing for things to be true, less gray area, more black and white. So a postmodernist would uh, want to emphasize the areas of life. You know, everybody has their own truth. All religions have their view of what truth is. There, there is no objective morality. Everybody creates their own morality. Bob, I think that postmodernism, though, has a really hard time explaining the meaningful realities of life. For example, uh, when you go into mathematics, Mathematics is not subjective. At least some forms of mathematics is not subjective. 
object. The laws of logic, not subjective. They're objective. I would say that probably most postmodernists don't know much about abductive reasoning because abductive reasoning has been kind of a, an unexplored area of logical thinking. I think often what, what postmodernists are, they don't like the certainty over here. But I think that actually a postmodernist would probably be more interested in an abductive argument than they would be in a deductive argument. I think maybe postmodernists, if they were shown the effectiveness of abductive reasoning, I think they might bite. They might be ready to take it. Yeah, and I think that is a very, that, that's a troubling element. I mean, I mean, in one sense, I think Christian theists uh, and naturalists have more in common. You know, they, they either God exists or he doesn't. There is either absolute moral principles or there isn't. I think a naturalist is a bit more willing to listen to you and say, yeah, there, there is a, a black and white element of life. I think the postmodernists want to emphasize the gray area. But again, I think maybe a very effective way of kind of going at that is to show them that there are certain things in which there isn't gray area. You know, when we engage in mathematics, when we engage in logic, it's A is either A or non-A. God exists or God doesn't exist. He can't exist for me but not exist for you. He either exists or he doesn't. He can't exist and not exist. I, I think with some rigorous logic, with some careful thinking, maybe some postmodernists would be willing to say, maybe there's a little bit more black and white than I thought. Now, there are, there is a point the postmodernists are making that I think does have some legitimacy, and, and, and that is maybe there is a right answer about abortion or about capital punishment or about stem cell research. Maybe there is a, a, a preferable moral viewpoint, but maybe, maybe none of us see it exactly right. That is, I, I think there are moral absolutes, so obviously I'm a Christian, but that doesn't mean that we always see it or understand it. And of course, that, I think, then tells us how important revelation is. Because if we're fallen, sinful people, we need God to bring us into the light. We need Him to tell us what the preferred moral perspective is. So I think we can say, look, I agree with you that maybe, maybe some of our ways of thinking are clouded. Maybe we don't understand everything the way it is. But that doesn't mean that there isn't moral objective moral values. It, it's really more a statement about us. It means our minds are clouded. And uh, Christianity says that uh, the Holy Spirit's role is to bring us that revelation, to teach us those truths and uh, things like that. So I think that, uh, I, I think that uh, unfortunately, abductive thinking has not been tried. What, what did G.K. Chesterton, how many of you have heard of G.K. Chesterton? Uh, Chesterton was a Roman Catholic in the 19th century, and uh, he once said in one of his famous writings, he said, it's not that Christianity has been, has, has been tried and found wanting. He said, it's been found and, and found difficult and left untried. And I think that's right. I think that, uh, I think that there is a way of reasoning about God that is very, very powerful. 
And uh, it's a little bit different than inductive thinking. It's a little bit different than deductive thinking. But it is, it is a very, very powerful way of thinking. And in the next six weeks, I'm going to present that case to you. I'm going to argue for an abductive form of reasoning. Uh, one of the ways that we call abductive reasoning is a cumulative case. And I'll explain more about what I mean by that. But that's the way attorneys argue it. Right. Uh, When I was growing up, uh, you had the Tate LaBianca murders here in L.A. It was scary. I was just uh, just a junior high school kid reading the newspaper. And there there was a a couple families that were just butchered, stabbed over and over. And it was some of the richer parts of Los Angeles. And the cops just didn't have a clue. Who is doing this? Is this a. A, a, a mass murder cult gone wild. I mean, you know, what's uh, and one of the ladies, uh, Tate, is a uh, a movie star. Well, Vincent Bugliosi, who uh, took on the Kennedy assassination, he prosecuted Charles Manson. And the, the case that he made was called a cumulative case. He said, it's not one piece of evidence that leads me to conclude that Manson murdered these people. But all of these pieces of evidence and each piece of evidence that you add makes it even a stronger case that it was Manson and the Manson family that did it. Well, that's that's the way I'm going to reason. That's the way I'm going to argue. Uh, And when we come back, uh, there was a time in my life. I'm now an old man. I'm 53 years old. uh, There was a time when when I first started out in apologetics, I was a historical evidentialist. I was a Walter Martin, John Warwick Montgomery, apologetic thinker. And uh, I, when I would uh, go out and speak, I would try to copy Walter Martin and John Warwick Montgomery. And then, but very quickly, I realized I'm not Walter Martin and I'm not John Warwick Montgomery. Then I met Norman Geisler and I became a classical apologist. And I began presenting argument that the, the the cosmological argument for God's existence and the teleological argument and the moral argument. And then I met Greg Bonson. Greg said, ah, that's not the right way of doing it. You need to adopt a presuppositional approach to apologetics. So I became a presuppositionalist. And uh, then I started reading Alvin Plantica. And I adopted his new reformed epistemology, which says that you're within your epistemic rights of believing in God with, without evidence. And so I covered all the bases. And then I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I came to the conclusion, I think there's a fifth way that I've uncovered myself. It's, it's not that other people don't hold this view. But I think that this is the best way of doing it. Because in reality, it takes things from the other view. And it makes the case. And that's what I'm going to. That's what I'm going to do in the next few weeks with you. And and at the end of the seven-week course, you'll decide if you think that's a good way of reasoning about God. Let's go a little bit further here. And uh, for the Korean students, uh, Dan mentioned to me something that may be very helpful. Wikipedia has a nice article on abductive reasoning. There's a good article there to to help you on that. Now let's, let's talk a little bit further. So the clear pointers to God... How believing in the God of Christian theism makes sense. Makes sense of the meaningful realities of life. 
Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about that. But before we do, I want to again talk about abductive reasoning. And again, we often call that inference to the best explanation. And I, I want to illustrate to you how similar this is to the way people reason all the time. They're not aware of the word abductive. Uh, it's kind of a philosophical form of reasoning, but in reality, lots of people do it. It's a normal, natural way of, uh, of reasoning. Uh, let's, let's start out with a, with a doctor. Um, you know, uh, a, a doctor has to take a look at all of these symptoms, and then he or she comes up with a diagnosis. Uh, in fact, uh, we call the doctors who do all this troubleshooting diagnosticians. Diagnosticians. Diagnosis. I'm going to give you a good example of that. I know it firsthand because uh, in 2003, in November of 2003, right before Thanksgiving, I was, in fact, it was a Friday night, I was going to teach the academy, and uh, I'd gone to work. I got really sick, bad headache, sick to my stomach, um, fell asleep on the bed, didn't wake up for three days. Or, or if I did, it was just for a short period of time. And uh, I remember my wife telling me, you know, you're really sick. You can't teach the academy tonight. And I said, no, I'm going. And uh, finally, I couldn't get out of bed. And so I said, yeah, call Winona. I, I can't make it to the academy. So I, I slept through Friday and Saturday, and my wife came home Sunday morning. She works at Loma Linda University Hospital, one of the leading hospitals in the state. She was talking to the doctors there, and the doctors told her, you know, you really ought to get your husband to the emergency room because he's, at minimum, he's very dehydrated. Something's not right. So uh, she had helped me. I literally couldn't get out of bed. A lot of things to be thankful for. One thing to be thankful for is your ability to get out of bed. So I couldn't, I could barely get out of bed and I got to the emergency room and I thought I just, I just got a bad case of the flu and I had a really good emergency room doctor and he wrote down all the symptoms and he said, you know, this pain in the back of your head is really bothering me. I can account for the other symptoms, but this pain in the back of your head troubles me. So he, ha he had me do a CAT scan where they took, they take pictures of your brain. And uh, he found six brain lesions. And uh, so they, he said, you know, he came to me and he said, I need to talk to you privately before your wife comes in. But he said, uh, you, are, you are deathly ill. Um, we need to send you to another hospital. You don't have the flu. So I'm like, okay, this is my time to die. So I got to the other hospital and they took a, they took a, a, a uh, an MRI in my lung, found a large lesion in my lung, six in my brain. Uh, I had four doctors. One of the doctors said, looks like brain, it's stage four brain cancer. And um, a couple of the doctors said, you better put your house in order. So I thought, I'm going to take a trip to the city of God. I'm going to get to see Augustine and chat with him about the Trinity and I'll see more of the Trinity than I've ever seen before. Actually, I wasn't very, I, I figured that was going to happen. I wasn't terribly happy about doing it, leaving my wife and my kids. 
But I, at one point, I had four doctors, and uh, they would come in, and of course, I could get out. I couldn't get out of bed. I had a lot of pain. They were giving me morphine. I had all these drugs, and uh, I remember them coming in, and I, I, I wasn't terribly conscious or clear-headed, and they stepped out of my room into the to the uh, hallway, but I could hear them talking about me. And uh, they were they were like, how many of you seen the, the the TV show House? Right? He's a diagnostician. He gets all of these. Ooh, this is a troubling case. You know, nobody can solve it. Well, the doctors were there talking about me, and they were saying, you know, if it was this, then we'd see this happening. But but that's not what we see. And, and then you know, then there was another doctor. He was a disease specialist. And he'd say, but if it were this, and I I remember thinking to myself, even though thinking was very difficult, I remember thinking to myself, man, medicine and science is not very certain. I mean, they're they're guessing. So it took a long time to come up with the symptoms and uh, to develop a diagnosis that could then attempt to cure me. I I remember they, they asked me all kinds of questions and they were trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with this guy. Because they, uh, I, I remember one doctor came in and I said, well, in, for a few minutes I felt lucid and, and cogent. You know, most of the time I'd look at my wife and say, why am I here? I had all these drugs and, and these, these uh, terrible lesions in my, my brain. And uh, the doctor said, I said to the doctor, well, what will you do if I have, uh, if I have these brain lesions? He said, well, we could, we could uh, drill holes in your head. And I thought, Let's hold that back for a while, right? Well, um, he was a diagnostician. He was looking at the symptoms. The four doctors came in, and uh, they—they I have a, I have a, an eight-inch scar on my back. I they, I had lung surgery because they wanted to. They figured whatever's in the lung is likely in the brain. We don't want to go in the brain. Because if we start drilling holes in this guy's head, he's not going to be the brilliant Christian philosopher he once was, right? So they figured, let's go in the lung, we'll test the lung, and then we'll figure out what it is. If it's infection, we'll be able to treat it. So they uh, opened my lung up, and they took a piece out, and they, they analyzed it. Well, notice what they were doing. They were looking for the best explanation. Do we drill holes in his head? You know, do we, uh, what, do, what do we do? How do we treat this? And it, and it ended up, I had a disease, a very famous disease called nocardia. Um, it is, uh, it's when the immune system breaks down because there is a, a bacterial infection. And so uh, they ultimately figured out what it was, and they were able to treat me with heavy doses of antibiotics for six months. And they cured me. But notice what they were doing. They were looking for the best explanation. They got all these symptoms. What, what explanation explains what this issue is? And they finally ended up that it was no cardia. But uh, we, we, can, we can also look in, in other ways. Uh, let's, let's take uh, CSI, the crime scene investigator. Any, any of you ever seen the CSI program? Who hasn't? Crime scene investigators, you know, they, they have, uh, you know, some kind of crime here. 
And they got a dead body. And there's bullets in the ceiling. And, uh, you know, all these, all of these things, all of these evidences. And then they have to come up with some kind of theory. You know, how, how is it that uh, this crime happened? Uh, how did this person get killed? And how, who do we tie it to? They're moving, they're asking, what's the best theory? What's the best explanation? That is a very natural way. Policemen are taught to think this way. Crime scene investigators are taught to think this way. Uh, lawyers think this way. Uh, they're, they're coming up with, they, they, they look at an event and they're, they're asking, uh, again, what is, uh, what is the best legal explanation for what happened? And I'll, and I'll tell, you, tell you one more that, that I find personally very interesting. Mechanics do it. I remember when I was a boy, six years old, my dad, after he got out of World War II, he was a coal miner in West Virginia, and then the coal mines really went bad. So he learned how to fix automobiles and trucks. And he was a heavy-duty truck mechanic. And one thing that my dad would often do my dad was a good Christian guy. He always knew all the widows who had lost their husbands, and he would bring their cars over to our house, and he'd fix their engines. He'd tune up their cars for them because he knew that they didn't have a man around the house to help them out. And so my dad would often do that, and I was like, why are these old ladies coming to our driveway, pulling their cars up there? And my dad would work on them. But one thing that really surprised me when I was a small boy is my dad could listen to the engine of the car. He'd just say, rev it up a little bit. He could listen to the engine, the noise of the engine, and he could diagnose the problem of the engine. And I thought, my dad is a shaman. He's like an Indian. You know, he, he is amazing. Well, what I didn't know then, and I do know now, is that my dad had studied the internal combustion engine. And he realized that when there were certain problems with an engine, it would give up, give certain effects, certain characteristics, almost like symptoms. So if it was uh, the water pump, then it would, it would give these characteristics. If it was a carburetor problem, it would give these characteristics. So my dad wasn't an Indian. He wasn't a shaman. He, he had learned, he had learned cause and effect. But you know what? Uh, when they described my dad's job, he was a, a diagnostician. He was diagnosing the problem with the engine and suggesting, ah, here's how you solve it. Here's the best explanation for what the problem is with your car. So, abductive reasoning is really a, a, a very common way of reasoning. Lawyers do it. Policemen do it. Doctors engage in something very similar to it. Uh, mechanics engage in this kind of reasoning. That whenever you are involved in diagnosis, diagnosis. So if you're a diagnostician, you're pretty much reasoning abductively. Now, that's why I think this is such a powerful way of reasoning. This is a very intuitive way of reasoning. This is a very natural way that people reason but they're often just not taught to think this way. You know, and sometimes abductive reasoning will overlap with inductive reasoning, and, and sometimes you might even involve deductive reasoning. But abductive reasoning is a very powerful way. 
questions about any of that. Does that make sense to you? You see what we're doing. You see where we're going. What is the best explanation for this phenomenon? What is the best explanation for this reality? How did it get here? Why does it act the way it does? Now, what we're going to do is uh, I like uh, mnemonic devices. I like memory devices because as I get older, uh, I have to remember, I have to work harder at remembering things. Okay, so we're, we're going to call them, we, we, we have these pointers, but we're going to call them clear pointers, C-L-E-A-R. Okay, these are the clear pointers to God. Well, what is it that God can explain? What, it, what is it about God that he becomes the best explanation for these things? Well, the C stands for cosmos. Cosmos. Why is there a universe? Where did it come from? Why is it so fine-tuned? Is the best explanation that it happened by chance? Is, is it the best explanation that nature is just that way? It's a brute reality? Or is the best explanation that God designed it that way? So where did it, where did it come from? Why does it have a beginning? Why is it fine-tuned? Why are there these fundamental constants that are dialed in in such a way to allow for life? The fundamental constants of physics. And they're within a razor's breadth. It's, it's almost as if, and, and, and I'll give you some quotations next time we meet. Many of the leading physicists, it says, it's almost as if some being dialed in all of the fine-tuning to allow for life. Well, what's the best explanation of that? The cosmos. Uh, how about life? L-I-F-E. The interesting thing is that... Uh, People are looking for meaning and purpose in their life. I have, I have a couple friends who are psychiatrists. And they will tell you that uh, in order to have good mental health, you need to know that there's a reason for things. There has to be a rhyme and a reason. There has to be purpose. Uh, the worst thing for a person who's struggling with, with bad mental health is, is to think that uh, it's just happenstance. Things are out of control. Where do I have meaning and purpose? Uh, what, do I, what is my life about? Why am I here? Uh, what's my purpose in life? Right? There's a very famous uh, psychiatrist and philosopher, Viktor Frankl. I quote Frankl a lot because I really like him. Viktor Frankl was a German Jew, not what you wanted to be right around in the 1930s in Germany. Uh, very famous doctor, uh, but the Germans decided that they were uh, going to take everything they could away from the, from the Jews. And uh, finally, they, they uh, put them uh, in ghettos. And then finally, they put them in concentration camps. And six million Jews perished in the Second World War. Frankel was in a, a very famous camp, Auschwitz. A-U-S-H... Auschwitz was the largest camp. It was in Poland. Commandant in Auschwitz, a man named Herse, said that more than two million people were put to death in that camp. Uh, Viktor Frankl, Viktor Frankl said that uh, he needed to have some normal uh, normalcy in his life, and uh, so he started psychoanalyzing the guards. 
and started studying the, 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 the people who were in the camp. And he concluded, by the way, you can read all about his life story in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankel said that when people gave up hope, when, when, when inmates in the camp gave up hope that the Allies were going to come to rescue them, um, they'd fall over dead. Hope that uh, their wife was in the, camp, the woman's camp down the, down the railroad track. Uh, you know, hope that their children were still alive. Hope that God would rescue them. I mean, some of those Jews walked into the death camps um, saying the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh Elohim. Uh, um, Frankel said that when people gave up hope, they would fall over dead because they were being systematically starved to death. Frankel lived through, his wife was killed, his parents were killed, his child was killed. He somehow miraculously made it through. When he came out, he developed a philosophy he called logotherapy, in which he argued that what people ultimately need in their life is a philosophy, a worldview that gives a meaning, purpose, and significance. And he drew from Judaism and from Christianity. Later wrote another book, Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning. You not only know meaning, but you need something to give it ultimate meaning. Why, why do people need hope, purpose, and significance? Uh, you ever heard of the philosopher named Nietzsche? Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher who said God is dead. Nietzsche, by the way, also said that if you have a, a why, you can put up with almost any what. Nietzsche said if you have an ultimate reason for being, you can take anything. Of course, Nietzsche's father was a, a Lutheran minister. His, men, the, his father died very early. Nietzsche became very bitter. was raised by his aunts and his mother and became the most passionate anti-Christian. Um, Peter Kreis said that uh, Augustine was the most passionate Christian and Nietzsche was the most passionate anti-Christian. But even Nietzsche said, if you have a why, you can put up with any how, any what, as long as you got a why. So why do we need a why? Why do we need hope? Why do we need significance? What is it about human beings that they need all of these purposes? Uh, how about E? Well, we'll make E ethics. The study of the good. Moral values. Where do they come from? What guarantees their existence, their viability? What, what justifies them? Um, if evolution is true then what's the difference between exterminating an animal species and exterminating a whole race of people? How do you get moral values? How do you justify them? I would say if God exists, moral values exist. And God would anchor them. He would ground them. They would come out of his moral nature. But if there's no God, I see no reason whatsoever to believe that there are objective moral values. That is, things that are true and good, independent of the human will. God is the best explanation. We'll make A, abstractions. You know, there, there are some wonderful things in the world, 
But a lot of the most wondrous things can't be seen. Numbers. Can't see them. But some of the great revolutions in the entire world, uh, you go back, you know, uh, to the ancient world, maybe 2,500 years before Christ, people started using numbers. And uh, they became part of their normal life. It started a revolution. And then, and then later, uh, the idea came along that, you know what? You, you, can, you can use numbers in the way we think about larger reality. And then finally, with the coming of Pascal, a Christian, by the way, uh, Pascal, who was a scientist, a philosopher, a theologian, a great writer, Pascal said, you can take mathematics and apply it to the future, and he developed probability theory. And, and that's where insurance organizations come along and they figure, well, I wonder how long Steve's going to live. Well, let's, let's negotiate here. We'll, we'll, we'll predict the future. We'll, we'll come up with probabilities about future events. And when a bank wants to lend you money, they're doing probability theory. Is it, is it reasonable Bob's going to be able to pay all his bills? Well, um, can't see numbers. Can't touch them. Mathematics. There's no science without mathematics. Why does mathematical theories in the mind of human beings match reality? Why is it that E does equal EMC? Why, why is math in Einstein's mind match reality? Where do the laws of logic come from? Abstractions, universals, moral principles. These are things you can't see, you can't smell, you can't taste, and you can't touch. But they're like the software that makes the computer of the world happen. Where do they come from? Why? I mean, why should it be that human beings can actually understand the intelligibility of the universe? Mathematics makes it possible for scientists to understand the world. Why would that be true if evolution is true? Why, why wouldn't the universe be chaotic? Why should human beings be able to track the intelligibility of the universe? Well, if all of these numbers and logic and mathematics, and if the universe came out of the mind of God, and if God made you in his image, and then he networked the universe and you with himself, then science could take place. And, and by the way, there's a brand new book. It's only been out a couple of weeks. It's called The Genesis of Science. The Genesis of Science. Uh, it's written by a scholar from Oxford. The subtitle is How the Christian Middle Ages Launched the Scientific Enterprise. How the, how the Christian Middle Ages Middle Ages birthed science. When skeptics come to me and they say, you know, I don't believe in Christianity because Christianity is not scientific. I say, you know, that's a funny thing because Christianity birthed science. But you say it's not scientific, but it's the Christian worldview that brought it into existence. And they don't really know what to say back. The reality is that uh, science is only possible if we can if the world is intelligible, and we can track that intelligibility. It makes a lot of sense if, if the mind of God is behind all that. Okay?
And then finally, the R is religion. Uh, John Calvin, by the way, who liked to study the Bible, he uh, used to like to read Romans 1 and came to the conclusion that uh, Paul is really talking about what Calvin called the sensus divinitatis. That is, it, it seems like all of us have a sense of the divine. The vast majority of people who have ever lived on planet Earth have believed in religion, have believed in God or gods. And Calvin reading Romans 1, the writings of Paul, said that it seems like all of us really know there's a God. We have, we have this sense of God, this intuition that there's a God. It's, it's not that we even have to be reasoned into it. It's the natural, in, it's almost like an instinct. Well, if Calvin is correctly reading Paul, that would explain a lot. That would explain why you have such religiosity. It would explain why the world is so religious. But there are a lot of other things when it comes to religion. Why are human beings so religious? Uh, why, why is it that people have been designated homo religiosus? And if evolution is true, let, let, let's, let's, let's assume the opposite. Let's reason to know God. Let's, let's try the opposite abductive reasoning. Let, let's conclude there's no God. The universe is just a, a lucky accident or some mechanistic, naturalistic reality. Well, now the question is, uh, why are people so religious? Well, I think they'd have to say because evolution made you that way. There are some people that do argue that. You, 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 so evolution produces religious beliefs. In, in fact, there are a lot of skeptics, an increasing number of skeptics. Lawrence Krauss, the famous atheist physicist. Um, the Skeptics Magazine. The guy here in Los Angeles, what is his name? Um, Shermer and Dan Dennett, one of the new atheists, they say, well, the reason you believe it, the reason why human beings believed in a in in God, the reason why human beings have believed in objective moral principles, the reason why human beings have believed in life after death, is believing all those things gave you survival advantages. That's evolution. You, you develop certain beliefs or characteristics because that helps you to survive, the survival of the fittest. And here is the, here is the problem, and it's a big one. That means evolution caused you to believe false beliefs. There are survival advantages in believing in a God who doesn't exist, in believing in an afterlife that doesn't exist, and believing in moral principles that are not valid. So evolution has caused you to believe false beliefs about reality. So smart aleck Christian philosophers like me then say, maybe evolution is one of those false beliefs. If evolution is true, if God doesn't exist, I see no reason to trust our cognitive faculties. Because evolution doesn't come from reason, mind, and rationality. And we know it's duped us. It's lied to us. But it is much better to think that minds come from other minds. Reason comes from reason. Purpose comes from purpose. And, and of course, we can spend a lot of time talking about Jesus. 
how do you explain him? You know, he talks about Yahweh and he talks about God as if God is his personal father. The Jews never used the idea of Abba. The Jews did in the Old Testament from time to time talk about God as father. But Jesus comes along, he breaks all the rules and he says, he's not, he's not our father, he's my father. In fact, he's my dad. He's my daddy. He's my personal father. And he gives people the, the clear indication that him and Yahweh are on equal footing. To see me is to see the Father. To hear me is to hear the Father. You trust in Yahweh, trust equally in me. Let everybody worship the Son the way they worship Yahweh Elohim. What? And Jesus turns the whole world upside down. He doesn't, he doesn't act like merely a prophet. He, he has a, clearly has a prophetic role, but he's a whole lot more than Moses. He certainly has a kingly role, but he's a whole lot more than David. He doesn't act like the Pharisees. And then he goes around reaching into the Old Testament, whereas if you read the book of Isaiah very carefully, chapter 41 through 48, Yahweh likes, has a special name for himself. God likes to be called I am or I am he. So the Jews get into a heated debate with Jesus of Nazareth, and they finally say, who do you think you are? You go around talking about God as if he is, you're, you're on equal footing with him. You, you speak of him in these intimate ways. You don't follow the pattern of Judaism. Who do you make yourself out to be? And he says, before Abraham came into being, I am. And they immediately scream and say, taking the most sacred name of God in the Old Testament and applying it to himself. And they want to kill him. Well, abductive reasoning. What's the best way to explain Jesus? What's, what's the best way to explain the, the resurrection? The fulfillment of prophecy. The miracles. The, the moral transformation of his life. His claims, character, and credentials. What do we do with him? What do we do with this, the birth of the church? In just a few years, Christianity explodes. 300 years, it dominates the Roman Empire. Another thousand years, it, it dominates Western civilization. Now, more than a third of the people on the planet are Christian. How do you explain all that? Of course, uh, other people may want to come along. I mean, Muhammad is a pretty influential person. There are a whole lot of Muslims in the world. But again, what's the best explanation? And, and I, what I'm going to argue in the next coming Friday nights is I'm going to simply say, I think a very powerful way of reasoning with Hindus and Buddhists, with atheists, with uh, Jews and Muslims and common everyday skeptical people, postmodernists, is to argue with them and to make a case that God exists, and not just any God, but the God of Christianity exists, because God is the best explanation of all of the meaningful realities of life. And if you take a different God in, then you get all of these inconsistencies. You get all of these incoherent elements. And if you dismiss God, then you have all these happenstances. And you can't trust your cognitive faculties 
Because evolution has lied to us. And I think it's a very powerful way of reasoning. And if tomorrow I were to debate an atheist, I would, I would reason abductively. And if uh, Jehovah's Witness were to knock on my door tomorrow, I would reason about the Trinity and Jesus abductively. I would say it makes more sense to believe Jesus is divine than to believe that the Father created the Son and Arianism is true. And what I would try to convey to a lot of skeptical people who think Christians are kooky and unreasonable and and quacky, I think what I would say is, look, uh, I'm going to reason with you for the truth of Christianity, but I'm not going to reason any differently than the way a good physician would reason, a good lawyer would reason, a good crime scene investigator would reason, a good mechanic or an engineer would reason. I'm going to appeal to the inference to the best explanation. I'm not going to argue that Christianity is the only explanation. I'm not going to argue that there aren't other alternative explanations. I'm not even going to argue that there aren't some other explanations that do have some explanatory power. I'm going to argue that believing in the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, provides the best explanation for all of the meaningful realities of life. And I'm going to leave it there. And I'm going to say, I've, now I've demonstrated that Christianity is the most reasonable explanation. There are other explanations, but they're not as, they're not as, they don't explain enough. They have other problems. And then I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to do what he does with people coming to faith. And I'm going to argue that, uh, that faith has its reason. Uh, St. Augustine, um, um, St. Augustine is my favorite Christian thinker. The most passionate Christian is the way Peter Craig de- describes Augustine. Augustine says, reason doesn't cause faith, but reason everywhere supports faith. I like that. What he means is, you really can't reason people into faith, but once you begin to explore faith, you discover that there are all kinds of good reasons for it. And of course, I believe that a person cannot come to faith by purely a rational basis alone. I believe that what, I believe that people have to be drawn to faith. I believe that God's grace has to fill up their hearts and their minds. I believe that that there's something supernatural happening with faith. But once a person is led to faith by grace, and then they begin looking for answers, and here's another expression Augustine liked to use, faith seeking understanding. And that's me. That's me. I have faith. The Lord has given me faith. He's given me grace. And He's given me faith. And He's given me eternal life. And now I take that faith and I seek to understand. I seek to explore things using the good, the good reason that God gave me. And that is, uh, I think, a powerful way of, of reasoning to God. Mm-hmm.